Digital Drift, episode 75, recorded June 10th, 2015, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles. began in 2008, the year before Salvation, and the first season ran for nine episodes. The second season ran to 22, and like most Fox shows, it was cancelled. There were several reasons for this, but one was that it conflicted with that wretched, tedious movie we've just finished reviewing. That's Terminator Salvation. Though there were some steps made to overlap the two timelines when you watch them, they are clearly two distinct alternate realities. There are even some fan theories that try to mash together Terminator 3 and Sarah Connor Chronicles and say that both happened. And this is a good show. Even at times, a great one and definitely the best piece of Terminator media since Judgment Day. If you're a fan of the first two movies, you will find much to like, and if you've enjoyed Battlestar Galactica in the past, that's the show it feels most like, not least because of the Bear McCreary score. Now, we're going to do this in two sections. The first, where we talk about the show with relatively minimal spoilers. The second, where we talk about it all the way up to the last moment of the last episode. Now, you can pick up that first season for about £2.50 delivered via Amazon sellers. So this is a pretty soft barrier for entry. The second season will cost more like a tenner with similar prices in the USA. And that will almost certainly be worth your money more than paying to go and see Terminator Genesis in theatres. And if I'm wrong, I will joyfully guzzle down these words. Uh, Just so you folks know, I'm not wrong. Show discussion coming up after the music. If you want to go in completely cold, then hang fire until you've at least seen the first nine episodes constituting season one. To explain the timeline for this, you have to take Terminators 1 and 2 as pretty much set in stone. Both of those movies happened, unlike Terminator 3, where it's very clear things were different because the writers were inept and didn't check their facts. This one has been very carefully laid out by big fans of the first two movies, including show creator Josh Friedman. So, The Terminator happened in 1984, Terminator 2 in 1995. In 1999, John is 15 and in high school. In the pilot episode, his teacher turns out to be a Terminator and tries to kill him, having been sent back by Skynet in a third attempt. Now, remember this guy. He's a T-888, I believe. Is that right? Uh, yeah. 
and we'll, like, and we'll call him Cromarty because he is a stalking presence throughout the series. John is saved by Cameron, a cybernetic protector sent by his own adult self in the future to once again keep John and his mother safe. Unusually for the series, Cameron doesn't just try to destroy the attacking Terminator. Her plan revolves around actually travelling eight years into the future to land in 2007. This achieves several things. One, it takes John and Sarah off the map for a while in the eyes of the authorities. Two, it puts the events in the present day in terms of TV writing so they're not hampered with late 90s technology and settings. But they can also have John still a teenager and his mother still relatively young. Three, they jump over the death by cancer for Sarah, laid down by that rat bastard Terminator 3, jumping forward to a time when Sarah should be dead by their own admission in that. This allows her to continue the fight with borrowed bonus time and improved tech. And four, once again, Judgment Day is moved. In fact, it fluctuates to the point where more people and machines get sent back from futures that are being altered by current events throughout the show. So when these humans confer on the futures they come from, their accounts and points of reference are not wholly aligned, therefore championing the ideology that the future is not set and there is no fate, but that which we make for ourselves. Now, the end of this first episode sees John still at 15 and Sarah, around about 34, now displaced to 2007 and living in a house with Cameron as their not entirely trustworthy protector, further resolved to take down Skynet in its early stages before it wipes a significant portion of humanity from the globe. So this is really where the alternate histories diverge wildly. We're going to go back to my universes theory. Okay. In Universe A, the events of the Terminator play themselves out in a cycle. Judgment Day happens on August 29th, 1997. John Connor sends his father, Kyle Reese, back to 1984 to protect his mother, and Kyle unknowingly conceives John himself. This is the only timeline in which all time travel is part of human history. In Universe B, the events of the Terminator and T2 happen, but due to the destruction of Cyberdyne, the arm, the chip, both Terminators, and Paul Miles Dyson, the Connors prevent Skynet from existing in 1995. According to the alternate ending taking place three and a half decades after the ambiguous theatrical finale, Judgment Day never comes, and in 2029, Sarah is still alive and watches her son and his daughter play in a playground. This is by far my favourite. They make their own fate and change the future for the better, based on their knowledge of the dark possibility. This is basically how 90% of thrilling time travel stories play out. There is a possibility, by the way, that Sarah's cancer was still a part of that timeline but because john was a senator and had the money to afford proper health insurance for her it was dealt with maybe so i don't think john would be a senator in uh 2005 though it'd have only been about 21 true not impossible but very very unlikely no you're right 
In Universe C, the events of the first two films happened at different times due to incompetence in writing. And then Sarah dies of leukemia in 1997. John mopes around for many years. And then the third and fourth movies happen with Judgment Day occurring in 2004, seven years later than originally predicted. It's a shit timeline with countless contradictions. And I hope Genesis erases it from continuity. Like that fax. In t- Back to the Future 2. <laughs> <laughs> it erased. It didn't erase it. Uh, it now looks like multiple different timelines rather than one river that keeps rewriting itself. So uh, these all still happened. It's just that we're in different universes now. Oh, yeah. There is one moment in uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles when they mention that they ran from the police in 97, but I actually think that was just due to a lapse in writing because they say it was 95 earlier and they got all their other timelines correct. So I think that's just a glitch. They do glitch the timeline repeatedly in Sarah Connor Chronicles, actually. They get John's age in um, Terminator 2 wrong. He states he was was 13 when that happened. Eddie Furlong was not the... Team. Yeah. Well, uh, we're, like, we're, we're going to start quibbling on actors' ages. We'll be here all day. But no, no, no. I mean, the, it the was ninety-five. He was playing. Yeah. yeah. Universe D is identical to Universe B. This is the beginning of Sarah Connor Chronicles. Judgment Day doesn't come in nineteen ninety-seven or two thousand four, but Sarah develops cancer and dies in two thousand five. John goes on to become the leader of the resistance and sends Cameron back from 2027, notably two years before he sends back Kyle to jump him and his mother forward into Universe E, which is where most of the Sarah Connor Chronicles takes place. In fact, due to their actions in 2007, 2008 and 2009, we end up several universes sideways by the end of the series and far away from shitty Universe C. That leaves Genesis to deliver us, at the very least, a Universe F. Which may or may not be F for fail. Believe it or not, that is the simplified version of events. Many Terminator fans consider only the movies to be the true timeline. I'll take the TV show over the post-T2 movies without a second thought. Okay, so let's talk characters, because that's really where the strongest points are in this show. So uh, if we can keep this bit before the spoiler section to um, mostly events that happen in season one. I think we can pretty much spoil all of season one. Nothing's going to blow anyone's mind. Okay. And anyone who wants to go in completely cold has already left us. So, Okay, so we'll start with Sarah Connor, played by Lena Headey. I did not think that uh, anyone would be able to uh, replace Linda Hamilton, but uh, when I was editing the um, uh, first Terminator podcast earlier this week, and uh, I was um, editing around your uh, just our discussion about Sarah Connor, I couldn't get Lena Headey's head. I couldn't get Lena Headey's face out of my head um, in that she represents a major installment in Sarah Connor's life. She's a huge um, step forward in the character. I think it's almost as uh, she almost changes as much in this as she does from the end of Terminator one to Terminator two. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair to say. I think the part of the strength of her presentation of the character is her 
vulnerability and her fragility. Mm. And that's not to say that Linda Hamilton wasn't fragile in her own way, but there was something very brittle about her. Um, she was very hard, but you got the impression that she would break very easily if dropped from a far enough height. Um, whereas Lena Headey always seems to be on the edge of breaking but not there's a flexibility to the way that she copes with what's going on around her um to accommodate the the changes that she sees and that she has to deal with mm. the remit with sarah and this seems to be okay we got her to this certain place um in t2 or, or cameron did um now we need to go beyond that like what have you got left if you've made yourself a drill sergeant all this time mm, can, yeah. can she get back to the woman she was before and I think part of it may well come down to the fact that they, although they only flash back to it very, very briefly, uh, her time in the mental hospital would be very, very different in the mid to late 2000s, um, as in how the audience of the TV series would view it, than how it would have been viewed from the audience watching it in the film in early 90s. Mm -hmm. So I think there's... There's a way that that needed to be accommodated, not to make it seem like, oh, this mental hospital is actually really nice and everybody's incredibly kind and everything's wonderful. And she comes out of this smelling of roses, but just it's not that sensation of, um, you know, prison lockup and constant torture and torment. Um, her, her torment becomes more internal, I think, in, in the scene where they go back to that, which I think has has good value in terms of not making people very conscious and uncomfortable about the fact that she'd maybe been treated in a way that, that wouldn't sit well with how uh, mental illness was being viewed at that time. Mm. Yeah. One of the, one of the greatest uh, female performance of our, of our generation, I think uh, in terms of television, mm. I think, let's, let's leave Sarah for now. Cause I suppose we can go into more plot related stuff later because mm -hmm. obviously okay. she's, she's very important. Thomas Decker as John Connor in season one was a bit of a mopey, floppy haircut. I, I was going to say, I think a lot of that comes down to the hair. Um, I don't know how much of this is a scripted issue because there's a significant point of turnaround. Yeah. And it's entirely possible that they wrote him that way before the moment of turnaround very deliberately so that you would see the shift much more clearly. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that that's almost certainly um, he's he's nowhere near as mopey and self pitying as uh, Nick Stiles, John Connor, oh, and he's Lord, no. he is definitely not an idiot. Um, but I, I'll at least uh, spoil this about season two later on. He basically becomes the best John Connor we're going to see. Oh hell's yeah! Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be very very difficult to approximate this in a movie. Mm -hmm. Because we spend so much time with him having to go through so much shit. And there's in, just enough time for it to really potboil the character that he cemented it for me. I love Eddie Furlong as John, but he is an underdeveloped boy just finding his feet. And he's one of the best kids in all of cinema history. But um, Decker becomes one of the best young men in TV history again these two incredible performances and you don't get to see that in the first season he's just sort of mooching and moping and stuff and all of the real pressure comes on in season two mm. so you're gonna have to shine it on for a season folks. <laughs> i think part of it as well comes down to the 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 down 
pattern playing of the qualities that you saw Eddie Furlong bring through in that version of John, mm. um, in the the uh, the kid who's been bounced around from uh, from father figure to father figure most of his life, um, dealing with a mother who is more concerned about his immediate physical survival than any of his emotional needs, mm. um, and then dumped on foster parents who don't really seem to give much of a shit, uh, and then have to deal with this whole oh my god now there's a robot that's trying to kill me Um, and there didn't really seem to be much of that carried forward which I admit would be it would be very very difficult for somebody starting that role fresh to be able to present all of that um, you know, it's kind of like the, the scene in the birdcage where it's like you do you do Madonna and all the rest of it, but you do it all inside. And to, <laughs> to, to put that across in in the very short space of time that they had in the first season, especially considering that they lost the last three episodes to the writers' strike, I can see how Decker would have struggled with it. But the way he develops the character in season two is it more than makes up for it, in my opinion. I agree. He's definitely the best John Connor I've seen. If they were going to recreate what he does with that character in a film version, I would be inclined to cast Nicholas Holt. Yeah, I was thinking that as, as well. But obviously, we, we watched uh, Mad Max over this, but uh, Holt has the same energy in X-Men Days of Future Past. It's all held inside, all that frustration, all that anger. Yeah. And he projects outwardly this um, intense but seemingly fairly passive young man. Mm, it's yeah. it's a far cry from Christian Bale's screaming madman. Oh, yes. Um, I've, I've, the, the complete nincompoop that Nick Stahl blundered around being in uh, uh, Terminator 3. And uh, Jason Clarke was great in um, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but I, for some reason, doubt he's going to be able to approximate this in Genesis. I hate having to sort of pre-review um, performances like that in films, but unfo- it, it, it's relevant, unfortunately. It's relevant. Well, we'll see what happens. But no, I, I, the way it's been being marketed certainly does not make me think that that angle that quiet intensity and and very very dangerous calm is something that they're going to be maximizing we'll talk about that in a second right (laughs) cameron phillips i can't remember the exact uh, uh, origin of her uh, surname i don't think it gets mentioned much she might name herself after a screwdriver but uh yeah this is the t900 uh played uh, by summer glau um, again, season one, she starts out fairly uh, good at infiltrating. And so she's, uh, she, she passes as a teenage girl in uh, John's high school in the pilot and then comes on a, a bit robot and drops the pretense around the Connors. And then it's almost like she goes way back into being a robot for the uh, next uh, few uh, episodes after that, because she, uh, she's, she's back to learning. There's, Everything about her character relates back to Schwarzenegger's T-800 in T2 when he's learning, which, of course, people who've only ever seen the theatrical version won't get. Mm. Uh, But I don't think anyone who really watched much of this wouldn't have seen the extended edition. Yeah, probably not. And I think you you do kind of get flashes of of that from... Um, Schwarzenegger in Judgment Day. It's just that you don't necessarily know why he's behaving that way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Again, fan-bloody-tastic turn from Summer Glau. You mentioned uh, while we were watching it, at some point she's going to be able to play a girl who has all her marbles. Because the, this isn't a million miles away from River Tam. It's not. She does do it superbly well, though. Um, she, I don't know quite how to put my finger on it, but it's, it's something about the way she portrays the ability to observe humans doing humany things without getting caught up in it. Yeah. Um, she plays River mostly very detached from emotion, and it's only when the, the, the sense of emotion completely overwhelms her that she gets drawn into that, but she doesn't behave in a way that is consistent with um, a, a, a balanced human trying to draw all those influences together and obviously with Cameron it's without wanting to spoil too much it's mostly this very detached observational I can see why these humans are behaving in this way but I don't comprehend why um, approach to things she does she deals with everything so rationally and so perfectly calmly that there's an eeriness about it that sells the the role perfectly. Uh, there's two other um, important characters in the sorry, two other significant characters in season one. Uh, James Ellison, uh, played by Richard T. Jones, who is an FBI. <laughs> I am sorry, Richard T. Jones. You probably didn't have that much to work with, but this is an intensely boring character. I, I want to stop talking about him. He's uh, he's on the trail of the Connors um, after they reappear in 2007, and um, he doesn't do very well at finding them. And when he does, he sort of talks to them a bit, and then they don't really know what to do with him in season two. He is a loose end, and... Um, uh, they should have done more with him and developed his character into something. Uh, he's he's John Stewart, the Green Lantern. He, only a bit less dynamic. <laughs> less dynamic than John Stewart. I think his his purpose is to add an entirely human perspective to the situation, and one from somebody who knows nothing about Judgment Day and has no stake in it. Which means he's this sort of really innocent guy knocking around the place, talking to people who are like, I know something you don't know. Yeah, which unfortunately also means that every time he comes up with anything, a solution or an idea or a philosophy about what's happening, I can't help but think your opinion is irrelevant. You don't know what's coming. Yeah, get off the screen. Basically. Um, there's also. I, mean, I don't think he bored me anywhere near as much as he bored you, but um, but yeah, he 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 doesn't connect with the greater story the the way that I think he could have done. On the opposite end of the scale, there's Derek Reese. That's right, folks. The brother of Kyle, the older brother, who uh, I believe is sent back before his younger brother uh, to protect. Um, is he there to protect John and Sarah in this past? I'm not sure. It chops around a little bit, but there are numerous soldiers that get sent back to do various other missions. It's not um, very clearly defined. It's not. I think he is supposed to be something to do with the guy who developed the Turk. Hmm. He knows him in the future. They're friends. The Turk, um, but- folks, is a chess-playing computer that Sarah suspects might be uh, the one of the basis computer programs for Skynet. Yeah. Um, 
and it's uh, made by a man named Andy, and she almost kills him, but then doesn't, and then he gets killed anyway, so she feels really guilty. Mm. That's one of the main plot lines of the the season. It's 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 very kind of not much of a muchness. We saw this ages ago, and we weren't really all that compelled to watch season two. So it, yeah, it took this series of reviews that sort of like got us off our cases to go and see season two. That's how different they are, really. Did we actually finish season one the first time through? Yes, no, we, we finished season one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I distinctly remember that they played Johnny Cash's um, When the Man Comes Around to, to excellent effect, although it had already been done in uh, Dawn of the Dead to mm. better effect. Because yeah. um, it's just I, uh, the, the tail end of the events, I didn't remember any of that happening. Yeah. Well, it just sort of passes by. Apparently, they were supposed to, the last four episodes, they had to hold over until the beginning of season two. Those were the storylines that were going to finish it off. So it was going to end in a really dramatic way. Instead, it sort of finishes in a sort of, uh, more stuff's coming. And so season two instead starts in a really impactful way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, howdy, does it ever. Oh, hold on. There's like three other things worthy of note in season one before we move on. Uh, Uncle Derek takes John to see uh, a young boy playing uh, with his brother in the park, uh, and John realizes he's looking at his own father. It's kind of wonderful. And um, it's, it's worth seeing this season just for that moment, I think. It's one of the things that starts to move John around. Cameron dances at one stage. She doesn't have to. There's no real reason why she should be so fantastic at ballet. Um, but she does, and it, it moves... Uh, I believe it moves, is it Derek, almost to tears? Yeah, yeah. Because he's only ever seen machines capable of appalling acts of of atrocity, and he's supposed to be, um, you know, he has set himself against them, and yet there's this notion of a soul going on inside this body being evoked with a dance. It's fantastic. I think specifically in that scene as well, it's significant that she doesn't know he's there. Yeah. Um, and for a machine to do something which isn't being observed yeah. by a human. It's not a performance. Doesn't serve she's... any practical purpose. Yeah. Uh, she's doing it entirely for her own reasons. And Cameron's own reasons is one of the themes of her development arc throughout the whole thing. Because Terminators aren't supposed to have their own reasons. Uh, there's uh, three other kind of major people and events which turn up, which you may have forgotten at least one of. Um, Enrique turns up. Remember the guy that uh, Sarah went to get for, uh, help from with his family in Terminator 2? Yeah, no, He's I remember there. Enrique. They balls his character. Oh, no. as far as I I'm know concerned. you remember him. He's a major <laughs> character, but regular people would be like, um, uh, yeah, I sort of remember Enrique. And then he sort of turns up and then he apparently sort of betrays them, but it's not really made clear. And then Cameron shoots him in the head. And you're like, oh, I liked Enrique. And he's like a major character and a tie to Sarah's past. I guess he's dead now. Okay. And then there's Dr. Silberman, who's similarly tied to Sarah and Sarah's past and just turns out to be a nut job who straps Derek to a chair. And it's, it's Senator Kelly from X-Men. And he is absolutely a TV actor. <laughs> <laughs> And he was doing that performance in X-Men as well. Uh, and there is a, a, a very upset girl who Cameron talks to and John talks to, uh, who then commits suicide. And John wants to try and stop her, but Cameron holds him back. And that is one of the things that begins to weigh heavily on John. Mm. 
that's uh, it's it's a major event. Uh, but uh, all in all, the the uh, the first nine episodes are just that some various ideas being sort of laid down. None of them really gathering all that much momentum. Um, but it's it's really the, uh, the the beginning of season two that it starts to just massively kick off, and uh, the relationship specifically between Sarah, John, and Cameron becomes majorly important. And we're gonna go to some music now, and after that, we are spoiling everything. So, you folks have been warned. Cameron's turn. We're going to take it after you're listening now that you've seen all of them. And we're not going to explain that it happened. We're just going to talk about it. Okay. So, um, this this whole intro sequence of Samson and Delilah with uh, Shirley Manson singing. Um, and you've got this, this major tension going on through it. John and Sarah being held captive by uh, shady types and Cameron has just been blown up in a jeep and she's crawling out of the jeep and limping along as a Terminator does and you're thinking she's got to get there, she's got to save them and when she gets to the room they're being held in it's gone into later but John's basically killed a guy to um, save his mother and it has a major impact on him. It's the first time he's ever killed someone. Sarah's never killed anyone. And it's a huge deal, and you're reminded of how relatively innocent they both were up until that point. And then to crown that moment, Cameron starts to try to kill John, and you realize she's been broken, and she's gone back to her original uh, process. And that starts a whole series of... um, a sense of serious mistrust in her and you know she's stalking them as a Terminator does throughout the whole first episode and at the end there is a phenomenal moment where Sarah pins her between two trucks and John whips off her plate to get to that chip in her head to reset her and destroy it not even to reset her to destroy it and to kill her and she starts off uh, assuring him that she's okay and she's better now and she's fixed herself and she's run a, uh, a diagnostic and she's not going to kill him. Uh, then she tries to appeal to his better nature uh, using every trick that appears that Cyberdyne have given her in the book until eventually she is pleading for her own life. And there is a, a sense of ambiguity about the scene. Is she just doing it? because she's been programmed to do it? Is she doing it because she genuinely feels it? Um, And it's electric. It is one of the best moments in television that I have ever fucking seen. And Summer Glau deserves an Emmy for just this moment. John, 
John, you can't do this. You don't know what you're about to do. Yes, I do. You're gonna kill me. No, John, you can't do this. You're not doing the right thing. This is not the right thing, John. Things are good now. Things are fine now. I ran a test. Things are good now. I'm fixed now. You can trust me now. Everything's good now. What are you waiting for? She doesn't know. She doesn't. I'm good now. I'm good. I ran a test. Everything's perfect. I'm perfect. John! I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry. It wasn't me. You have to understand. It wasn't me. That wasn't me. You can't let this happen, John. You can't. Please, listen to me. Listen to me. I don't want to go. Please, John. Please. John, listen to me. I don't want to go. Please, John. Please. I'm good now. Listen to me. I don't want to go. I'm sorry. That wasn't me. I'm fixed now. I ran a test. Everything's perfect. You can trust me, John Connor. I love you. I love you, please. I love you, John, and you love me. Josh Friedman said on the uh, um, commentary, she means it. And that changes everything. If, if uh, that, that, you know, it, after the fact has been confirmed that she genuinely does express what she considers to be love for John. And more specifically, she says, and you love me. Now, at the end of it, John, after switching her off, then has the ability to destroy her with uh, a thermite plasma and a flare. And decides against it, goes with his instinct, believes that she will not kill him, gives her the gun, and you get inside her HUD uh, terminate, and she overrides it. And it's not just that a program has changed in a subroutine in, inside her um, cranium. She operates free will. And that is a huge deal. Not a single Terminator has been able to do that up till now. Technically, in Terminator 3, and we never mentioned this, when he gets reprogrammed, he goes, and seems to, using operating free will, override it. But that's a shitty plot contrivance, and they were never really going to elaborate upon that. Also, the idea that you can uh, instigate your own willpower simply by gritting your teeth. Yeah. Um, This has to be earned. Now, here's the thing. Love is being expressed here through the will to override instinct. And I think it's fair to say that that is the case in biological creatures and in humans to override the instinct to just fucking leave. Well, if you look at it in terms of uh, the, the evolutionary process, it's the, it's the step between individual survival and group survival because love is at its most basic level the thing that makes you willing to risk your own personal safety and well-being for the safety and well-being of your collective similarly when she says you love me This is not something that's the case here, right there, although John's obviously been having odd feelings for her. Cameron, this unit, has spent a long time with John in the future. 
and uh, he knew the woman that she was before she killed that woman and then came to infiltrate and then terminate him. So we have already seen in Terminator 2, John has proclivities towards uniting humans and machines and being able to find some form of uh, collaboration. And that's what all of season two is about. And that's what it was leading up to. Uh, John's love for Cameron is expressed as his desire to see an end to the war by valuing more than his own life, a machine that is willing to change. And that's massive. This is so completely different from Terminators three and four. Cause if you go back through the episodes, it's, it, it's, it describes various dramatic conversations that happen between these characters where they are expressing very important ethical standpoints on it. Very li- because their lo- budget was low, they don't have you know the chance to turn trucks over onto their backs and explode them. Um, so they have to focus on the drama of it, which is what, which is the reason why we go back to Terminator One and Terminator Two. It's not for the action, although the action is great in both of them. Uh, it's the the smart, sharp, emotionally driven, but also intellectually stimulating discussions that take place throughout Terminators 1 and 2, including discussions with a machine. And that's why this is Terminator, whereas T3, Salvation, are not. I pray to God Genesis is. We'll see. It's not. Uh, John experiences his evolution here as well. This is where he he, uh, chops off his uh, floppy fringe and... um, becomes a man it's it's scary how much of a physical transformation he goes through uh it's it 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 seems to run naturally to everything that's that's happened so far and it it makes sense that they played the long game on this one and it really sells that and uh again um thomas decker this is where he really begins to stand up and it becomes not so much the Sarah Connor Chronicles as the Connor Chronicles. Mm, yeah. I think it, it coincides with, doesn't he, he has a birthday. I can't remember whether he turns 16, 16. or 18. It's 16. 16. Um, but very specifically, he he takes a step towards the person that he's going to be. And I think you get a sense that the a lot of the frustration that he feels is that everybody's always telling him he's so incredibly important and he's going to be this great military leader, but he is being held back from everything that he could do that would move him towards that until the time is right. But the time's never going to be right if if Judgment Day keeps getting postponed. And, and I think this is why the instance with the girl who... Uh, who commits suicide in the first series is so significant for him. Part of his role, the way he sees it as from being this, um, the, the leader of the resistance is being able to help people who need him. And he keeps coming back to this idea that if he'd been given an opportunity, he could have helped her. The reason that Cameron holds him back is because his mum has these rules about you do not do anything that will draw attention to yourself. It's not because he's going to get hurt. It's not because anything is going to specifically um, interrupt a mission or anything like that. It's just that at the moment, he is not allowed to stick his head above the parapet. And I think he starts to feel this sense of when is going to be the time that I am allowed to start 
not doing that because if I don't know when that moment is, it could come and go and I might miss it. Hmm. The, uh, the whole um, giving Cameron the gun as well uh, is an extension and a mirror of the chip scene in, in T2 mm. where John lays down, look, if my instincts are wrong, we're dead. But if my instincts are wrong, I'm going to be a terrible leader. Yeah. So my, you, we are both going to have to trust. We are all going to have to trust in this case that my instincts are right. That mm. time and time again, you have this theme of John displaying trust and faith, where Sarah displays caution. Yeah. And a, not a lot of the time, John's wrong as well. He, yeah. Uh, he, he's, yeah. He's not always on the ball. Yeah. And uh, he puts himself. It, it's a more dangerous situation as a result of his ability to reach out. Yeah. But again, it's that combination of the group of them. And I, I include Cameron and Derek in that as well. Yeah. Um, it's ultimately all of their input that allows them to move forward, which is possibly one of the reasons why it's so frustrating when there's episodes where the direction that the plot takes is not consistent with this idea that uh, all of them working together is what helps them move forward. There are a handful of episodes. We'll deal with them in a second, mm. but they absolutely suck. We'll warn you about them. Um, Jessie Flores turns up around this time. She's uh, an Australian woman uh, and uh, a friend of uh, Derek from the future. She's come back. I think um, she she specifically picks out a room that is brightly colored and as far a cry away from the dark future she comes from. And it almost seems like she's on permanent vacation. She's escaped from there and doesn't want to go back or do any kind of mission. She's just having fun before Judgment Day. Um, excellently played by uh, Stephanie Jacobson, actually. She's a, she's a really um, – she's not a likable character – but she's a, a vital character. She is. And I think she provides as well um, an, another leg to the... One of the things I really adore about this series is the the prominence of the, the women in it. Yeah. The characters who they all seem to represent aspects of the original Sarah. Yeah. Um, and if uh, the way that I saw Terminator, the, the original Terminator and Judgment Day was the idea that these characters were all representative of multiple different strands of, of the human psyche with this one, it's more that the multiple characters all come together to form a single psyche, although that could be influenced by the fact that that's the way that I was viewing Fury Road. So it's, I, my brain tends to run on themes. Yeah. Um, but you've got um, the way Sarah interacts with John um, is, is slightly different from the way we're used to seeing her in the films. But Cameron represents an element that's been removed, which is that emotional detachment. And Jessie is almost like part of her is that... Um, sort of the fun-loving Sarah that that disappeared. Mm. But that's a front because Jesse is also terrified and driven and determined and we 
find out as season two progresses that she has got a secret mission of her own that she's assigned herself she's not been sent back by anybody to do this she's decided that she's going to do something that will affect the outcome of the war um and that's exactly what sarah does in judgment day she takes it upon herself to go and execute miles dyson um, in order to prevent skynet and that's that's reflected in what Jessie does and, and the way she acts. And again, there's a way that Stephanie Jacobson plays her that always has that slight emotional detachment. You get the feeling that she's never quite present. She's never quite there. Um, there's always this sense that she left part of her back in the future. Yeah. And she's never going to get that part back. No matter what she does, no matter what she achieves, if she accomplishes everything she hopes to that part of herself is still gone another aspect of sarah is riley um riley dawson played by uh, levin rambin um a girl who john meets at school who seems really into him and interested in him very personable very kind of fun to be around a little bit quirky a little bit kooky uh, seems to be way too innocent to be um, drawn into this terrible situation, but she's just a, a little ray of light that John's clinging to to distance himself from the the darkness that the rest of his family and his mission represents. Um, also, she's something biological that he can reach out to since he's so uh, confused and conflicted regarding Cameron. Um Unfortunately, Riley is from the future and was uh, consumed by how terrible it was and was almost a shell of a person when she was uh, picked up by Jesse. Uh, she would be, uh, especially with her freak out at her foster family, uh, she would be Sarah, um, the maiden, barely coming to terms with the madness that the dark future that she, Cassandra-like, is um, party to but no one else uh, knows about uh, she's sarah just prior to incarceration mm, yeah and actually jesse puts her in a horrendous position because of all of these people who are having to deal with this dual um almost split brain awareness that this is the here and now where judgment day is not happening but i am aware of this terrible future that's coming and and i can't get away from that but everybody else who has that dual knowledge they can talk about it yeah they can discuss it with the people around them they can um all right not out in everyday public conversation but they have outlets by which they can share their fears and their um uh, their anticipations about what's around the corner riley can't do that because Jessie puts her in a position where she has to lie about who she is 24-7. And when um, Riley tries to reach out to her, to connect with her almost in... I mean, it's it's very subtly hinted that um, that Riley may have developed uh, kind of an infatuation with Jessie. She says, I love you. I believe that's, uh, that's close enough. Yes, that's true. And she says something about wanting them to be, to be together as well. But I think it's it's deliberately kept vague as to what that might be. She may see her as, you know, they're, they're kind of hinting at more of a mother figure. I don't even um, think it really needs to be sexual. Uh, it's, it's more the fact that she is um, someone strong that, she, that is leading Riley and mm. that she can 
if not depend on, she's her, she's all she's got. She's yeah. like an abusive mother to that mm-hmm. end. Yeah. Um, but also the idea that she's, that Riley's looking for somebody that she can be honest with, that she can tell the truth to and reveal the fact that she is from the future, somebody to be near who knows that and recognizes it about her. And Jesse just pushes her away. Mm. And won't have anything to do with her. It's cruel because all she's focused she on is her. the mission. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it would be like um, uh, Kara smuggling an infant Kal-El to Earth and saying he could not even tell Ma and Pa Kent that he's Superman yeah. and that he must always keep that under wraps. Absolutely. So that but, she, she, so that there's nobody. Mm. But there are there are threads in that relationship of how Sarah treated John when he was a child. There are. There are the drill instructor side of things. Sorry, I just said that Clark Kent is Superman. Superman is a name he gives himself. That that he is Kryptonian. That he is exceptional. And unfortunately, Riley is not exceptional. She's just party to information that is of of both absolute use and no use to the rest of the world. <laughs> because there's nothing to really do to process it. Mm. She is an important aspect, though, of seeing what happens when uh, normal, everyday people who have great difficulty coping with great stress and great trauma Mm -hmm. are put into situations where they have to contend with great stress and great trauma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she doesn't have, by narrative virtue, this um, core of steel that Sarah Connor possesses. And she doesn't have um, the charisma and the foresight that John has. Um, and all she never of had those... a Kyle to strengthen her. True. Um, but, but she, I mean, it's entirely possible that there are elements of her personality and her character that would have been, um, that would have got her through this if she had the chance to develop and relate. And she doesn't. It's all taken away from her. Kyle cared about Sarah personally. Sarah cared about John personally. Jesse doesn't care about Riley personally. She yeah. doesn't nurture her in the same way. Not even slightly. She's a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of trauma, Cameron's amnesia and Jodie the thief. This, like, When you get to the end of season two, you might start forgetting these earlier episodes. Uh, Alison Young, we find out, was the original Cameron. She was a girl in the future in an internment camp. Uh, and... Uh, Cameron, the, the the cyborg, starts having flashbacks to the identity of the original Alison to the point where she calls her own mother, which is heartbreaking. Um, she's malfunctioning. She malfunctions throughout the whole of season two as a result of exerting free will against her programming. That's why her hand twitches. That's why she's never fully settled. And that's why there's that always sense of uncertainty because she's gone from a zero to a previously unexplored one. I think I saw a two. Oh, Bender, there is no two. <laughs> There's uh, a, one of the episodes uh, our, our good friend Alistair uh, said is like one of his favorite pieces of television ever. Goodbye to all that, where uh, they have to, um, well, it's a double um there's, there's two things going on in the episode. One, Sarah kidnaps a small boy who might be subject to termination and um, tries to take care of him and sort of revisits her early motherhood and tries to maybe change things around to be a little softer this time. And the, the kid ten- warms to her. Uh, and the other is uh, John and Derek 
trying to track down a, a kid who would later be in uh, John's uh, army and uh, keep him safe because he's the actual guy who's been sub- uh, subject uh, targeted for termination. Uh, I won't spoil exactly what happens in the episode, but it is absolutely fantastic television. It is very good episodes. Very, um, there's an intensity about them, yeah. and you get that sense of creeping dread back that you had through mm. the films. Basically, the first twelve episodes of season two are absolutely flipping fantastic. It gathers steam, and it really uh, sort of starts paying off things that it's succeeded already, and gathering up for something more. Mm. Um, and it explores some really interesting side ideas. Yeah which is what a Terminator TV series would be for. It would be for looking at all of these uh, threads of possibility that you can't commit an entire film mm. to. Um, the one with Richard Schiff, Complications, where uh, uh, Derek has Paul Toby from the West Wing strapped to a chair and he's saying, you you are, you know who you are. I don't know who I, who I am. I am not the man you say I am. And there's that wonderful sort of sense of, of, of ambiguity and not knowing what's going on. It's the Sigourney Weaver, Ben Kingsley film, Death and the Maiden. Um, and again, that has a, a chilling ending. And uh, some. I actually started uh, um, typing in, uh, you know, interesting. He's got Richard Schiff in a uh, chair and he's interrogating him, but there's no actual mutilation and torture going on. How are they achieving this? And then the mutilation and torture starts. Like, okay, right, fair enough. So it's infiltrated all of television. But fucking fine. Maybe maybe My Little Pony Friendship is Magic will have a mutilation scene. We don't they know. do. They have a line in this, though. It's It's a very, what I would consider to be quite a low level of what's done. Mm-hmm. And it only happens then. They don't really go into anything like that anywhere else. Oh, yeah, because there's some stuff like that later on. Is there? Yep. Okay, I've obviously yep. blanked it. Yeah, that, <laughs> the one with the sleep clinic. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We'll yep. pretend that one didn't happen. No, we'll, we can't. <laughs> well, I will, damn it. Don't say it didn't happen. I saw it happen. <laughs> um, Cameron in the library... This is maybe oh, my favourite episode. episode. That is awesome. Uh, in its entirety. That that moment at the beginning in uh, Samson and Delilah and the moment at the end of Samson and Delilah, absolutely fantastic. And the, the episode, like basically just with Cameron stalking the Connors through the streets, suddenly everything's been shifted around. And it's like all of this fear they had that she might turn on them is suddenly now founded. And you wanted to believe she wasn't going to go back to being a Terminator. And it's all of Sarah's fears that they should never trust it come true but Cameron in the library is wonderful um with the donuts and uh, the uh, gentleman there again this is not really one that is is worth spoiling if you've seen it you know that it's brilliant and if you haven't yet seen it that's one to see it does however have another time travel conundrum involving the 1920s which is better than most time travel movies and would make a fantastic standalone Terminator film But yeah, it's again that they're exploring really interesting ideas, and the the whole episode is basically just uh, a, a, a guy who is unable to walk, talking to a very pretty girl who seems interested in him, but also very strange. And it's got a fantastic energy to it the whole way through. And again, they are capable of fan- just extremely well executed drama by the end. 
there's something very specific about the the conversation that he has with Cameron actually um, where the basis of why we are uncomfortable with the concept of um, AI uh, not not specifically the Terminators because you can understand why we'd be uncomfortable with them they generally want to take our heads off but um, the idea that artificially created life cannot fully understand the human condition and it's not necessarily that we think they want to hurt us because he doesn't think that Cameron wants to hurt him at that point it's that she can't understand that the things she's saying will cause him fear and pain and distress and that's the distinction between the human state and the machine state is that we can just about get our heads around why machines do things the way they do. They cannot get their heads around why we do things the way we do. Speaking of which, Catherine Weaver, the T-1001, this is Shirley Manson from Garbage, the uh, sole, it would appear, CEO of Zero Corp. Um, she has seemingly murdered this woman and her husband in a helicopter accident and taken the woman's form. This all happens before we start season two. And throughout the whole of season two, she's conducting, you know, um, shady goings on. And you're never really quite led to understand what she's doing until the last episode where she goes, blah, 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 blah. And then explains it all very, very quickly because they've been cancelled and there isn't time to elaborate on it. Clearly, they were going to in season three. Mm. And instead, you get a very quiet, intense, shifty-eyed um, Shirley Manson. And she's superb. Again, She is. She is fantastic. She is very Cylon. Yes. This is uh, where a lot of the BSG feel comes from. Mm. And, yeah. Um, uh, we can say because ultimately everyone who's listen, listening has, you know, invested in this. Um, it would appear her actual plan is not to ha 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 sow the seeds of Skynet and create Skynet, and so to be a, a direct enemy for uh, the Connors to uh, take down, um, but to set up an opposition for Skynet to uh, ex- to, to basically conduct experimentation into whether human mentality can be understood by a machine. Mm, Yeah. So she's trying to, she's almost consciously trying to overcome what I was talking about before, that machines can't understand humans. She is going Mm. out of her way to try and, um, if not understand humans, replicate their actions and replicate their thought processes Mm. um, and try to work work out how to make machines more human-like. To the point where she has a a daughter named Savannah, who is the human daughter of the woman she murdered, who's, that's not my mommy. Not the best child actress in the world, but there's some really oddly, like now in retrospect, kind of touching scenes where she's like, you know, come and sit on my knee then. Your knee, your lap's cold. I know, but we're going to sit on my knee and I will comfort you. And she's like, she's not a million miles off the iron giant. Only um, this, this stone cold mimetic poly alloy um, 
business tycoon. But it's again this this is something that really could have been explored later in, in a season three where she actually vouched to the girl, okay, yeah, yeah, your mother's dead. I killed her. Sorry, but I do want you to be safe. She even says to um, uh, Richard, sort of to James Ellison at the very very end, pick up my daughter from school. Like you know, I want to make sure she's taken care of. And that's sweet, but her real child is John Henry. Now, John Henry is the body of Cromarty, this Terminator who's been stalking the Connors throughout. From se- from episode one, he gets like yeah, he tries to kill John, then he gets torn to pieces in this bomb. Which uh, like I think no, actually Cameron blows him up with a grenade launcher, and then the bank vault explodes, and then um, he. Like his body comes out of a junk pile eight years later and goes looking for its head, and then he like finds the guy, wears a guy's head, then he like gets into a bath full of skin. Seals some eyes. Seals some eyes, like gets a guy to give him the face of an out of work actor, finds the out of work actor, kills the out of work actor, and then after all of that, he's um Garrett Delahunt, the guy who killed uh Bill Hickok in uh, Deadwood. What's his name in uh, the, the second role in Deadwood? Francis Walcott. Oh, God, I can't Like this terrifying stone-cold psycho in Deadwood. Yeah, I so, don't... <laughs> he's also in Looper as this, like, really scary, creepy, like, hired killer. Poor not Garrett that he's in danger of being typecast. He's anyway. never going to play a romantic lead. <laughs> it's not, is it? But he's got, like, he's scary when he frowns. He's ten times scarier when he smiles. He totally is. And um, my I, God, I what say... a series of performances in this. Mm. He goes from being like this Terminator who is intrigued by humanity, even though he's totally going to kill the Connors, to being some a, a, a machine that's completely different, that has access to that Terminator's memory banks, but is basically a child in robotic form wired into a computer, playing with Lego and asking creepy questions about God. Indeed. I think it's worth pointing out, by the way, John Henry is not um, is not the the body. It's the AI that's created um, that is kind of, it's very nebulous as to where exactly it is. It's situated in the, the set of servers that they create yeah, for yeah, him. John, but yeah. he's, he's given when they, that's his they get... Yeah, they get Cromarty, um, take out the chip and give the body to John Henry to basically use as a puppet. Um, the reason being, again, this idea of wanting him to be more human. Um, it's his pokey walker. <laughs> yeah. um, Weaver gets it into her head that part of what makes humans see the world the way they do is by the interaction of touch. And the only way John Henry can touch things is if they give him a body. So, um, so that's why they they use this as kind of a, I suppose, a, a prosthetic person mm. to enable him to interact with the world in a different way and to learn from that, which is fascinating in and of itself. I'm not sure actually. It's left, or at least it came across to me as being kind of vague as to whether Weaver or whether the T1001 had actually killed or at least. Um, instigated the accident that killed Catherine Weaver and her husband or whether uh, she just it just says that there was an accident with the helicopter in inverted commas Um, but um, yeah certainly there is an accident they die and she picks up Catherine Mm. Weaver's life oh and I I have the reading confirmed that she is indeed uh, that the version of the T-1001 that we meet in the submarine is the past version 
of Catherine Weaver. She right. then goes back in time and uh, her answer of no to John Connor mm-hmm. was um, we, we, we must find out in season three, which never happened. This is like Firefly, for God's sake, um, is, is no, I will not join you here and now, mm-hmm. but I'm going to go back and do my own shit. And then presumably later on she changes her mind about that and that's why she tries to reach out to them. Well, yeah. She wasn't aware that uh, Sarah Connor and company were actually in 2007-8-9. So yeah. it's, uh, it puts new pieces on the board for her. Mm. With regards to that scene, actually, where that message is passed to uh, Cameron and John, mm-hmm. is her question for all of them or is her question just for Cameron? What's the question? The, will you join us? Ellison meets Cameron and John mm-hmm. and says that Catherine uh, Weaver has a message for them. Will you join us? <clears throat> and it's not entirely clear whether that's that's just for Cameron, um, as in you come and be part of our machine collective. Oh, God, my voice is going. Um, or whether No, it's I think for... that's for both of them. I think you know, having John Connor on side is, is massively important if you want to basically turn the tide of the war. Yeah. Well, I think I think she's. It seems as though she's almost rethought her earlier um, reactionary response, mm. and actually now thinks that John was onto a good idea with the whole uniting humans yeah. and machines. Maybe she even went back in time to try and uh, fix mistakes that she'd made. John Henry and Savannah may, in fact, have had an influence on that. Yeah. Either way, she's a learning uh, Terminator. She uh, oh, very is way more advanced, it would appear, than the uh, T-1000. Although at times she is, finds it harder to fit in than him. Like when she's being photographed, she's like, right, I just sort of stand like this then, do I? Ah, now I think that probably comes down to the fact that she's more aware of the need mm. to fit in than he was. Yeah. Well, he was very much a kind of look. I've got one thing to do. It's gonna. I've got to do it as quickly as I can. I will bide my time, but it's going to be done. Whereas yep. she's playing the long game. Absolutely. And similar to Cameron, learns an immense amount because she's playing the long game. Mm, yeah. She gets old. She gets um, scarred, and then she heals. Mm, yeah. Similarly, uh, the T eight hundred in Genesis is playing the very long game. He becomes an old granddad. Indeed. How? I'm not entirely certain. Um, Because although they have um, skin on and it's intimated that they can heal to some degree, I don't think they can carry on doing that whole seven-year cell replenishment thing that humans have. Well, I think basically it can be explained as he's getting old and his cells are getting, uh, finding it more difficult. We'll we'll talk about that when we do Genesis. Either way, (laughs) he's been around for some, like, 16 years or so. Mm. Anyway, right. <clears throat> the downturn. There are four episodes in smack bang in the middle of this series that we stop watching at episode 12 on, on say, Tuesday, and we're like, those are really, really good. And we've been watching them like two or three a night, just gobbling them up, um, not three or four a night, uh, for several days in a row. Then we watched 13, 14, 15, and 16 all in one night, and they were terrible. And we were like, have we gone into an alternate dimension where this show sucks? For folks who've li- li- you know watched it but didn't notice, it's the one with all the funeral and where the uh, T-1001 goes on a killing spree. And look, There is no point trying to solve a mystery we already know the answer to. It starts 
starts with the UFOs. It starts with the UFOs and say, like, what were the UFOs? I'm like, probably HKs. And then she finds out at the end of that first episode, 13, an HK. And then we find out at the very end of the last episode of 17, it was an HK. We know it was an HK. What does that mean? Who cares? Skynet's, Skynet's building, building HKs. You know what's not interesting? HKs. And uh, the last episode, the HK turns up and goes, I'm going to fulfill my part. And dies. And they're being organized by some shadowy government agency that no one gives a fuck about. Who do like, like kidnapping and they try to assassinate this and that. We never find out who's pointing them in any direction. It certainly isn't um, Catherine. And the last one, 16, um, is the one where Sarah's in that sleep clinic. And it's got this really great performance from what seems to be Rebel Wilson's mum. And they're like, oh, wait a second. A really great performance? Fuck that. Let's burn her alive. And then they do. And then the whole episode, I'm like, oh, God, it's a horrible dream. And then in, when she's awake, she's being tortured by a bastard in the back of a van. And the thing is, like, Sarah shot this man to death already. And she's mourned and grieved and had to go through the... Um, the, the impact and experience of I've just killed someone. And that should have been a really great couple of episodes. But then he turns up again and goes, ah, I'm evil. And then like tortures the shit out of her. And then so, so then at the end she can mutilate the fuck and like stab his eyes out with thumbs and like break her own hand to get, um, handcuffs off. It's like another TV show completely. It's a pile of dog shit and I'm never watching those episodes again. I will skip the fuck over them from now Very on. Very sensible. I, I wouldn't want to see them again. The one with the UFOs kind of almost this is the first one in this downswing mm. it kind of seems to start well and then it hits a cliff point and just drops right off yeah because i mean you it's it, like because the, the, the catherine's gone on a killing spree in, in her like is it her own factory yes it is yeah in her own factory where she's building it would appear hunter killers um that then you get introduced to all the families of these people she's butchered. And like we're introduced to all these characters, all of whom have a lot invested in these people who were doing something shadowy and like they don't know and we don't know and we don't care. And like, there's so <laughs> and much drama going on. it's hard to believe that they care, frankly. It's, it's so distracting from the core group. It's just, it's bad television. Mm. And Thomas Decker's barely in it, which is like, yeah. well... I haven't even got anything to look at at this point. So, And then it comes back in an episode where Riley dies and Jesse kills her and uh, they think it's Cameron. And then there's a really intense like drive to that episode. It's like, what are we going to do about Cameron? And then like John's grieving for Riley and that has a huge impact. And suddenly like we, we started watching that the day after we're like, Oh, we're back again. What the hell happened yesterday? <laughs> And then at the end, um, uh, Derek, like, decides, well, he's going to kill Jesse. John says, let her go. And then she runs away. And then, but, but Derek's like, I'm going to kill her. And he, like, puts his finger on the trigger, which is a really great way of saying, look, if we want to bring her back, we'll bring her back. If we don't, then just assume she's dead. I don't know. I suppose it's, it's good from a comic book point of view. Because you can always use great characters and just callously killing them is actually kind of a bad idea because you put all that work and effort into them and they've got their deaths have to mean something. And Riley dying means a great deal, but everyone's so confused about it and there isn't time to really reconcile it because Jesse 
should really have become part of their group at that point. Mm. That I should have been a thing. The the last episodes of this season, you can unlike that that group of four that were just completely out of the loop and didn't fit with anything else. Yeah. These uh these concluding episodes fit with the series and everything, you know, the characters are all there and they're behaving the way that is consistent with the way they've been behaving so far and some of the writing is really really good and the plot twists are actually really engaging, but you can tell they're rushing. You can tell that now they know they're going to be cancelled and they are on a full-on slalom to a season finale that they didn't want to do. Yeah. A season finale, a show finale, basically. They're going to wrap it up yeah. in, in, in an episode. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, you call DEFCON 1, you go, right, we rewrite this finale and we deal with it in a very kind of like, we, we maybe have to do sort of, sort of like t- passage of time where we establish that things happen and we, ex- we, we each section of this will close off one part of this open story we've got but they spend so much of the last episode dealing with like sarah gets arrested Mm. uh that it's it's almost like well what's going to happen it doesn't matter deal with the stuff that's really important that you've been sewing yeah and also they seem to throw it into benny hill gear and everything starts happening so fast that you can't actually absorb what's going on including really really significant emotional events yeah um, there's a character called Charlie Dixon we haven't mentioned yet because it's all kind of plays into to who he is. Uh, he has he, he's one of Sarah's ex boyfriends um, who clearly that she was very very tender with and and um, like unusually for her and he got very involved with her and then he found out who she was and then she went and then she comes back and she's bad news and she spells bad news for him and his new uh, wife and then as a result his new wife dies and that's a really fantastic show that episode is so good because she becomes her own character and she carves out we have become embroiled in this situation but i have my own um story that is playing out here i have my own life at this stage uh and so when she's bleeding out you feel like something is really leaving at that stage. And you, um, Dean Winters, who plays Charlie, I always called him the Rat King because he's the guy from 30 Rock. Uh, and it's unfair because he's actually a really great stand-up guy. And he's losing so much as we're watching him on screen. So then when he turns up later, it's like, Sarah, what else can you take from this man by showing up in his life again? And what else could she take from him but his life? Because the, the finale of this is he he uh, does the decent stand-up thing, um, protects John and uh, dies for it. And it's a really tragic, sad moment. And it, it affects John, but not in a way that they're really given time for it to affect. It probably affects Sarah more. And then Derek dies. Just like that. Just like that. In fact, it happened so much like that, we had to rewind it. Because I was, like, talking, and it happened. But they, they didn't have that thing, you know, where you build up with the, the way that the, a scene is directed and the music and all of it sort of, like, plays out and it just, like, everything goes quiet and somebody massively important dies and there's a huge build-up, a huge payoff, and then the, the consequences of that. Derek dies like that somehow in a firefight with a complete nobody of a Terminator who shows up at a, like a deus ex machina turns up to dispatch him. And it's go, oh, Derek's dead, right, move on. And it's nothing. 
It's absolutely nothing. It's like, you know when Pepper dies in Iron Man 3? Yes. And it, it doesn't really have an impact. But even that, like, they, they focused the camera so that you at least got Tony's immediate reaction. Mm. With this, he dies, and then they find him, and they go, oh, Derek's dead, oh, well. And then they move on. See, that's the bit that I that have the most issue with. The fact that it so happened awful. really suddenly is yeah. not in and of itself a bad thing because guess what? Sometimes that's how death it. happens. It sometimes exactly. occurs without the build-up. Precisely. But, but the reaction, the complete lack of reaction afterwards was unforgivable. I mean, I, the, I don't think they really liked Derek much. He's kind of abrasive at times. <laughs> but... It's oh, you not... mean as in John and Sarah? I thought you meant you didn't think the showrunners liked him very much. No. Clearly <laughs> they liked him enough to sort of bring him back, sort of. And maybe that's why. Maybe because of the finale that they had planned, they were like, oh, Derek's dead, but don't cry too much. In the same way that Pepper died, but don't cry too much. Mm. Um, but it, it doesn't matter. In the same way, you know, when you, like, when Group dies, that has, it doesn't matter that he's coming back. That has to mean a fuck ton to the people that he cares about and who care about him. That's how you do death. And the way Riley died, that meant a lot. The way Jesse apparently died, that meant a lot. The way uh, uh, Charlie died still meant a hell of a lot to both John, who was panicking, and the way it was shot. There was a big lead up to it. And the way Sarah was, uh, like, just the Sarah was looking, you know, has, have they got away? And she sees the boat's gone. She's like, oh, thank God. And then she looks down to the water and Charlie's dead, floating in it. And it's this really heartbreaking moment. Mm. And again, it's her reaction that, that yeah. is what sells it in that. But yeah, Derek dies suddenly. There's an examination uh, at one point. Like, um... This unusual, uncomfortable, pseudo-sexual moment where um, Cameron uh, lies down, takes off her top, takes off her bra, lies down on the bed, offers John a knife, and basically bids him cut open her um, chest to get a feel at her power core. What did you make of that scene? Um, I, I don't know if I can say. Because <laughs> I just muttered at that point, let the slash fic commence. Yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty much what I was thinking. Um, I mean, was... Thomas Decker, to his credit, plays it incredibly uncomfortably. Like, there's like there's a lot of different conflicting feelings for him. That there, mm. he is definitely attracted to Cameron. Who wouldn't be? She's absolutely gorgeous and magnetic in terms of her personality. But she's a machine. But he's John Connor. Maybe he means more than just kill all machines. I mean, we're getting, like, basically it's Joker and Edie at this point. Yes, I think there's elements of that. Elements? I think, if if anything, Joker and Edie was almost as inspired by this as, as it was by Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, no, you're very likely right there. I mean, let's face it, if they if they were into one, they were probably into the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say the same about John. He was certainly into one. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I think it's one of the things that I really liked about that scene, um, massive, massive sexual tension notwithstanding um the the fact that it's 
it's kind of a microcosm of what their relationship is as a whole, that on the surface it initially appears to be, um, and I'm, I'm talking about future John and Cameron's relationship and the way that the human resistance sees it, because it's it's come back to over and again by several characters that they don't trust this relationship, that they're uncomfortable with the fact that John spends all his time around this machine. And it seems like there comes a point where he's so isolated from the humans that he's saved that Cameron is is all he will listen to. Mm. And people don't know why. And, and it... It, it's part of what's inspired Jesse to do the terrible things that she's done and put Riley in the, the terrible position that she has. Um, but the the fact that that, uh, that scene plays out as starting as one thing and seeming as though it's going to go in a certain direction, and then it shifts and it's actually about him checking to see whether she's a danger because that's what he's looking for. That's what she's she's asking him to check is whether her uh, power core um, unit has been compromised and whether she might be leaking radiation. Um, And that's in part because he's had this great trust for her this whole time. But now that he's, he knows about his mother's potential cancer, that's the, the thought that he goes to. Could it be that Cameron's leaking radiation and that's what causes his mother to get cancer? and I and one of the most uh, emotionally grabbing things about that moment is actually not when she takes her clothes off and lies down on the bed and he gets on top of her it's the point where he looks at her and you can see this um, this potential mistrust and anger start to form behind his eyes where it's never been there before mm. and that was massively powerful seriously this guy's performance was incredible in this show i'm really unhappy that there's not other stuff that i can go and see him in yeah because i don't think he's done much since this i I mean i could be wrong i haven't gone into the imdb page in great depth but as was sam mcglow as as i uh, said earlier the the um the moments of uh of uncertainty and conflict. I mean, it's it's one of the best performances as a machine I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, the only ones that uh, really come close are the ones in BSG, and, and none of them specifically stand out in my head. I think um, Trisha Helfer uh, in various different incarnations of Six probably eclipses it because she had a bit more to do. Because she she goes through so many different things, but the, I mean, in the Terminator franchise, this is it. This is the top, and yeah. um, it, it's you know with with Lena Headey as well as, uh, as Sarah Connor, it's just a fantastic trio of central performances, and the fact that they managed to rescue it after that fucking downturn. So, six, so 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So there's, there's like the, the last third of the season is actually not bad at mm. all. It's yeah. not as good as the first half, which was very strong. But I suspect basically somewhere in there they were cancelled. Mm. And that just pulls the wind out of your sails completely. And I, would, I don't understand that completely. Yeah, especially if it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And you you know you've been given the lengthy second series, and there's no reason to think that they aren't going to allow you to continue. So. Yeah, 
Um, Sarah develops what she believes is cancer again and um, rushes to the doctors. It turns out to be a, a like a tracking device and then she has to fend off the shady government agency and it comes to nothing because it's a remnant of that shitty aspect of the uh, season. And uh, then she gets uh, captured by the police. And there's a, again, incredibly intense moment. She rushes at the cops, knowing that John's inside behind her, trying to get killed because she doesn't want to put him in the position of, I now have to get my mother out. She wants it to be over. And she doesn't, she's terrified of dying in pain and useless with cancer. She wants to be uh, the least amount of burden to John possible. And it's, again, um, it's heartbreaking. Mm. And then John goes and, and rescues her with, uh, with Cameron in, the, in this rushed finale episode. You folks will have seen it by now. So the end result is they go across to Catherine Weaver, have a little chat. The drone attacks. Um, she takes it out. Then they go down to the basement to see John Henry. Cameron is gone. Basically, John Henry's gone and Cameron's body is left, but her chip is gone, uh, leaving an ambiguity as to whether she might come back. They might come back possibly in season three, which obviously never happened. Similarly, Jesse, uh, ambiguous as to whether she might come back. They laid all, they didn't salt the earth in that scenario. And most gratifyingly of all, John and Catherine head off into the future to save the fucking day. But following the example of Back to the Future 2, where Marty and Jennifer go into the future where they see their older selves, and, uh, you know, logically following up on that, wait a second, that couldn't happen. You literally couldn't exist in a future along the timeline which you'd winked out of existence in uh, some, what that have been, uh, 20 years ago. Mm. And so when he gets there, into the the scorched future that we're all so familiar with. Uh, He meets Derek, who is alive and well. And um, Derek says, I don't know who you are. I've never heard of John Connor. Because they wouldn't have. And uh, John realizes that he's wearing his dad's jacket. Oh, and Kyle Reese turns up. He turned up earlier in the series. This is a terrible moment as well. Because when Carl Reese turns up, he had better be as good as Anton Yelchin in Terminator Salvation. Anton Yelchin was the salvation of Terminator Salvation. Uh, in terms of a performance as Carl Reese, this guy is just some dweeb with sideburns. He goes, hey, Carl Reese, how's it going? He's really laid back. <clears throat> if anything, he's Michael Bean as Hicks. Mm, yeah. Not Michael Bean as Carl Reese. You, sir, are not... Kyle Reese is intense to the point of madness. This guy's just, hey, and he turns up and like he, like he's a figment of Sarah's imagination. That's a big deal. If Sarah's seeing the ghost of Kyle Reese, a fragment of her brain is, is showing her, that's a huge deal. And he just sort of hangs around with her like her imaginary friend and then fucks off again. He's not in an, again in, in the rest of the series. And it's like, well, that's a huge thing that could totally have been followed up with. Like, a, Imagine if they'd got Timothy Oliphant to play him. And I know his, his age is wrong, but he's got that intensity, you know? Oh, that would have been so good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then uh, um, uh, John turns around and Kyle Reese is there and Derek Reese is there and they're both alive and well. And John realizes that he gets to now have the chance to be John Connor now. 
Not in the future, not with it, this sort of Damocles hanging over his head, not with the fear of Judgment Day always hovering on the horizon or the, the, the fight to prevent it because it's already happened. And Catherine is there as this uneasy ally and she slinks off into the shadows and you don't know what is going to develop as a result of that, but you kind of get the feeling that it's good. And um, Alison's there, the uh, Cameron Terminator kneeling beside a dog to show she's not a Terminator. She is, in fact, this girl that was terminated by the Cameron Terminator in order to get close to John. So, effectively, he is being handed this girl that it was so wrong to be involved with, but now it's right to be involved with. But that's the thing. It kind of doesn't matter that he gets the girl at the end here because what's really important, what's really like phenomenally important symbolic by for this season is the symbiosis of man and machine and the, their ability to work together. And the fact that um, Catherine was already working to take down Skynet shows that she and the Connors are already working not at cross purposes and that there is hope for the future. Mm. And it's, it's actually really kind of about the happiest ending you could expect after, say, the original T2 or the alt ending of T2. There's a bit at the end of Terminator Salvation where John Connor goes, there is a storm coming, and I just thought, no. A, you can never say there is a storm coming. Not anymore. If you're doing a Terminator film... You can't say there's a storm coming because it's referencing the original Terminator. But you definitely can't say it years after fucking Judgment Day's already happened. You're in the middle of the storm, which technically should be the calm bit. Mm. (laughs) You would think, would you not? So what he really means is, we are surrounded by a storm. We're about to get to another one of the rough bits. But of course, the screenwriters are complete nincompoops. And, uh, yeah, Terminator Salvation doesn't end in a hopeful note, uh, but this somehow manages to manages to rescue what could have been a really snarled-up bad ending. Mm. And they could have left it on this kind of, oh, we don't know what's going to happen here. There is a moment of, of intense melancholia when you realise that um, Sarah's been left in the past and she has pretty much accepted that it's her fate to die of cancer. And this makes me resent T3 all the more because they, they laid that one down and it's been the Sarah Connor Chronicles job to deal with it. Um, but in the same, like it's almost like Sarah accepts that fate and John steps up to take his fate at this stage. The one that he was always going to take. But again, he has to forge it himself. It, he can't just, it's not going to be handed to him. It's going to require a supreme amount of effort. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, that could be where the good Terminator stuff ends. We don't know. We'll be back next week with Genesis, and I'll, we'll, we'll let you know. Yeah? Should we do that? Let's do that. Um, 
In case you're wondering, uh, folks, uh, we do thoroughly recommend uh, seeing Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, especially season two. Um, and we're going to leave on the Samson and Delilah, the uh, song Shirley Manson sung at the beginning of season two, uh, which is fan-bloody-tastic, as is she. We also recommend Garbage. Oh, yes, absolutely. The most inappropriately named band of all time. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little odd. Um, for the record, by the way, I have checked. Thomas Decker has actually been in quite a bit of stuff um, including, including a couple of TV series and a lot of films that look very straight to video. Mm. Well, he's still young. He could mm. certainly uh, go from strength to strength. We, we'll see. Mm. We, we definitely hope to see more of him in TV and definitely more Lena Headey uh, outside of Game of Thrones. And for God's sake, some Summer Glow. I'm actually considering seeing Arrow just for her. Mm. <laughs> Next week, Ant-Man. And check out our new YouTube show, School of Movies. Okay, right. Samson and Delilah, Shirley Manson, take it away. Thank you very much. Uh, so, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And come, come with, with me, me if you want, if you to, want live. to live. If I had my way, if I had my way, if I
Burn this whole 